Special Report. Neil Armstrong may have seen extraterrestrials on the moon. When he spies a discernible shape. That's one small step for man. You can deny all the things I've seen, all the things I've discovered, but not for much longer. Because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Full Spectrum Universe. My name is Rob Yox. We have an epic show for you today. As always, we're coming through strong. We actually have somebody who's one of my my personal heroes, and, and the work that he does is so amazing. It got me started down this whole, you know, this whole different side of what creation was and where we come from as a species. So let's get into his bio real quick, and we're going to bring him right in. So the gentleman I have today is named Michael Cremo. You've seen him on Ancient Aliens a numerous, numerous amount of times. But Michael Cremo is also known as the Forbidden Archaeologist. He is hailed as the groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993, already translated into 26 languages, challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil records and shakes up accepted paradigm. Exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places in India, appearing on national television shows in the United States and other countries, lecturing at mainstream science conferences and speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the natural or the nature of reality. He is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as a research associate in the history and philosophy science of the Bhati Vedanta Institute. After receiving a scholarship to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, known as the Vedas. In, the, in this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge and spirituality from the Eastern tradition. So let's, let's bring him in. Michael, how are you, my friend? Pretty good, Rob. Good to be with you and all your viewers. Oh, I'm so excited for this. So excited. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot is the, the Vedic creationism or the Vedic creationism. And I know that you had uh, an amazing, an amazing presentation at uh, uh, Forgery Unmasked that we did a while back. And, you know, this is more of a conversation. It's not so much of a presentation, but we'll go over some of it, too. You know, one of the things that I, I know you're a researcher, an author, uh, an archaeologist, you have taken on mainstream science to basically change their narrative to what is for us. You know, there's a lot of mainstream stuff that doesn't coincide with what we do, but 
they they tend to to throw us under a rug, but we know better than that. We're open to a lot more, you know, a lot more different views on life and how we came to be human species. So one of the things I wanted to go over was that, you know, you're you're a researcher in human origins at the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. How did that come to be? Well, that that has a, a lot to do with the way I was raised. Uh, my father was uh, an intelligence officer in the United States Air Force. And you know, that meant a couple of things for me as I was growing up. Uh, one thing it meant was our family was moving around a lot to different places in the United States, outside the United States. So I got exposed to a lot of different worldviews. And... Uh, I, I among among them was the spiritual tradition of ancient India, and I became very attracted to that, and that's what led me down that path. and And one of the things that I also got from my my family as I was growing up was, you know, like I said, my father was an intelligence officer. And so I kind of grew up among people in those kinds of professions who understand, you know, there are many factual things going on in the world that ordinary people aren't aware of. And, in other words, there are there's secrets. There's things that that are happening that we just don't know about. So I became interested in things like that, digging beyond what's on the surface, what's in the textbooks, what's in the media. Dig down for the real facts. So, as uh, part of my spiritual path or journey or whatever you want to call it, I became very interested in studying the ancient Sanskrit writings. And in them, I found accounts of human populations existing on Earth millions and millions of years ago. So this was something completely different than I'd ever heard from any of my teachers in high school or university. And that influenced me quite quite a bit. Uh, and I, I saw it wasn't just you know the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, but the, the knowledge that comes down through different wisdom traditions and various parts of the world, various times in history, they all seem to have this idea that we've been around for quite a long time on this planet. And... Uh, yeah, so I, I, I decide, well, let me look into this. Is there any factual basis for that concept? And when I looked in the current textbooks, I didn't see any. When I looked at what scientists were publicly saying, I didn't hear anything about that. But I decided, okay, let me look deeper. Let me get back into the original scientific publications from the time of Darwin up to the present. And then when I did that, I found 
huge numbers of discoveries by archaeologists, geologists, and others that did not fit the standard consensus. You know, that human beings like us first appeared within the past 200 or 300,000 years. They were reporting discoveries of human bones, human footprints, human artifacts going back millions and millions of years. So that's how I got on this path. Absolutely. And, you know, we're so glad you did, too, because a lot of what you say with that mainstream narrative is so, you know, with when you study a lot of these ancient cultures, it's actually off base big time. They talk about a 12,500 year, you know, span of human but which actually is actually a little bit broken now because they found, you know, pyramids that were 20, 30,000 years old. But, you know, even past that further, you know, there's so much more to our, us as a species than they want us to believe. What the, the reasons for them doing that, we really don't know, you know. So one of the questions I also wanted to pose to you is you probably get this from everybody. So I'm going to start right off the bat with it. How old is the human species? Uh, I believe it's been around forever, but here's, here's something to help clarify that, uh, to, to clarify this, we have to understand what a human being really is. Uh, most scientists today would say that, well, we're machines made of molecules. We're purely material beings. You know, you can analyze the human body. You're going to find carbon. You're going to find hydrogen. You're going to find oxygen. You're going to find nitrogen. You're going to find this element, calcium, phosphorus. And that's all we are, a combination of atoms of those different kinds of elements. So if, if that's what you believe if, if you if that's what you're convinced is the fundamental truth about who we are and what we are then that means somehow or other we combine together you know first starting as some single-celled creature you know that self-organized from chemicals a couple billion years ago and then somehow some of those first single-celled creatures began sticking together and forming multicellular creatures like simple plants, simple animals in the oceans. And then some of them migrated onto the land somehow or other. And some of them became you know, the plants and trees and everything that we see, the forest. And some became you know, the fish and the animals, other animals, mammals, and some of them by evolution, by natural selection, by mutations in the DNA, uh, they gradually change their outer physical structure, their bodies. So perhaps, uh, you know, some animal went up into the trees, became, eventually became primitive apes and monkeys. Some of them came out of the trees and began to scurry around, walk around on the land. And some of them became ape men like Australopithecus. And then some became 
uh, a little more advanced. And finally, 200 or 300,000 years ago, you get us. But according to that picture, that's completely accidental. You know, you wouldn't really expect to find, you know, if you ran the tape of evolution again, this whole sequence of purely accidental uh, mutations, random mutations of DNA, and yeah, you 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 really wouldn't expect to wind up with anything like a, a human being. It could have just as well have been cockroaches ruling the earth. So I, I don't see things exactly that way. And of course, I've simplified that view a little bit, but uh, uh, but basically, that's the the basic underlying picture. Now, when I look at things. I see there's something else involved with human beings, consciousness. Now, many scientists today will say, well, consciousness is just the result of chemicals and interacting in the brain. And at the time of death, when the chemicals stop interacting in the brain, there's nothing, no more consciousness, nothing. So that view of the world, in that view of the world, matter is the primary thing. However, I, when I look at all the evidence and when I consider all the possibilities, the most rational one is that consciousness has its own separate existence apart from matter, apart from the body, apart from, from the brain. And once that's accepted, once it's accepted, well, yeah, the, the body may be temporary, it, it may dissolve at the time of death, but consciousness goes on. It has no beginning, no end. Now, uh, that suggests that as conscious individual beings, we're from some higher level of reality that I call the level of pure consciousness, but we're not there now. We're somewhere else. And why is that? Well, it's because we've made some mistakes in the way that we've used our consciousness. And now we're in the world of matter. And uh, But when we're in the world of matter, the conscious self could occupy many different kinds of bodies. They're plant bodies, dog bodies, cat bodies, insect bodies, all, all kinds of bodies that conscious selves occupy. But among them, the human form is considered the most valuable because in the human form of life, we can ask questions like this. Who are we? Where did we come from? What's our original nature? So that, I think, has been provided to us by a higher intelligence in the, the cosmos. And I think it's always the human form of life and every other form of life has always been available to conscious selves on this material level of reality to give us the opportunity, if we want, to get out of the whole drama of taking one material body after another in the cycle of birth and death, which in 
Buddhism and Hinduism and the Vedic tradition is called samsara. So that is ultimately why I think we should expect to find uh, the human form going back to the very beginnings of the history of life on earth because it's it's always been there to give conscious selves the chance to understand what their real nature is if they want to do it you can also use the human vehicle to become more deeply involved in trying to dominate control and exploit uh, material resources and a process of competition and with other groups who are similarly trying to do the same thing and you wind up with the kind of world we see around us today with so many conflicts on so many levels, environmental destruction, social disturbance, exploitation of the poor by the rich, and so on. It's all there. But uh, I don't know. I apologize for you, you you really hit something that's I think is quite important. So I of course probably, no go ahead no apologies probably, needed. Probably went on a little longer than I should have. No 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 no. <laughs> I agree with you. You know I think one of the reasons why that humanity is in this debacle that it's in is because you know the the type of messages that you yourself are giving out to the people. Or not, I don't want to say being suppressed, but they have anti-narratives and programming that are keeping people and consciousness and human beings away from their full potential. And that is ultimately one of the, you know, these low frequency people or people who resonate at a low frequency. I really believe that they're there by their own choosing. They don't want to see the the higher aspects of life. And, you know. And a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about a little later with with, with uh, evolution or not so much evolution, but like a de-evolution from where we actually were so long ago. There's a lot of people now, I think, that are really striving to try and bring some of that back and try and go back in the other direction as opposed to going down, just being useless matter. Yeah, I, I kind of like the title of your show. What is this? Full Spectrum Universe? Full Spectrum Universe, yep. Yeah. Yeah, be be aware of the entire spectrum. You know, just like visible light, you know, the human eye can only pick up a certain part of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. You know, we don't normally perceive infrared at one end of the uh, the the spectrum or ultraviolet at the other end. So, yeah, we we should understand ourselves according to the full spectrum of energies that are, make up our existence. And you know, just to put it very simply, I think there's matter, mind, and consciousness, or spirit, if you like that word. But th that's what a human being is made of. And you mentioned this concept of devolution of course, I wrote you know, a book, Human Devolution, a Vedic mm -hmm. Alternative to Darwin's Theory. But, um, yeah, originally, as beings of pure consciousness, we exist apart from 
matter. But if we misuse our independence, our free will, which we always have, it's an integral part of us that can never be taken away. But if we use, misuse, excuse me, if we misuse our free will, then the conscious self comes down on the frequency spectrum, you know, and becomes covered by more material energies like mind and a gross physical body. And that process of descent uh, is what I call devolution in the ultimate sense of the word. Now, once a conscious self is in the world of matter, it has to take on one material body after another because the universe is kind of like an educational opportunity. We can decide to become more and more deeply involved in trying to dominate, control, and exploit matter. Or we can decide, I want to put most of my energy into developing the resource of consciousness. Uh, Yeah, let's satisfy our material needs in the most simple, natural, efficient, and fair way possible while putting most of our human energy into developing that resource of consciousness. And actually, if you have enough people doing that, you have an entirely different kind of civilization, which isn't going to be based on just producing and consuming individually and collectively more and more material things and competition with other individuals and groups trying to do the same thing. And, you know, it would be a different kind of civilization. A lot of the overproduction and overconsumption of material things would come down. And if that happened, that would be very bad for the institutions, the political institutions, the religious institutions, cultural institutions, financial institutions, military institutions that are all based on that. And I think that's, to get back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, Rob, uh, that that. I think is one reason for the resistance of science, you know, a corporate official scientist, because, you know, that is their purpose in the whole scheme of things to keep people's conception of their self, their sense of identity as, yeah, I'm just a purely material being in competition with others for survival. That's very good for that project of uh, extracting wealth from the whole process of material production and consumption and having that wealth and power concentrated in the hands of uh, a few, a very few people who uh, probably could be 
in a different position if they had a different sense of their identity. So I think that's very important that if you could control a people's sense of identity by having a monopoly in the education system as modern materialistic science does, then if you define a person's identity, then they'll behave. You don't have to tell them what to do. They'll do, they'll do what you want more or less naturally. You know, for, for example, if, if you're told, okay, you're a machine made of molecules, you're a cosmic accident in an accidental universe, and the, you're purely material being, and here are the material opportunities for you, then you'll just go for it because you don't have any alternative identity, which would be the basis of a different set of values, goals, and purposes in life. So uh, uh, there would be a different set of relationships among people. Uh, it's, it, it, it's really a, a, a fundamental idea. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I agree 110% with what you said, too. And I think that they want to you know, they always say a man who doesn't know where he comes from is a man lost. And I think that what you're doing is you're giving us a, a, a way to look back and see kind of where we came from with, you know, the archaeological and, hid, and hidden archaeology and this forbidden knowledge. That's why I think what you're doing is so important for people, because you're taking an aspect of what you were not shown had to go and find out and when you found that out you're spreading it back to everybody so i think that that's why it's such a great thing too yeah yeah you mentioned the archaeology work that's stones and bones basically uh but uh that's part of our current picture of who we are and where we came from you know the darwinian picture of evolution i mean it's mostly about I mean, nobody really cares very much where the butterflies came from, but they're very interested. Who's our ancestor? Where did we come from? So we're being told you're you're an evolved ape. That's what you are. Uh, you're 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 an accident of evolution. That's what you are, and and since you're a purely material being, will give you plenty of opportunity to do that. We'll take our cut and you can have you know this for me and that for you and you'll you'll be happy and pretty grow much old yep. and die and that's it. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that's happening right now too is there everybody talks about this great awakening. You know, this great awakening where people are starting to shift more in a superficial way, a lot of people, some people are really doing the work and getting to this, you know, this fundamental lifestyle of, of, of spiritual beings and based on uh, what you put out, you get back and things like that. They're paying it forward and stuff like that. You know, there is a paradigm shift happening and more and more people are starting to see that we are spiritual beings we are consciousness and what we do here eventually goes back to the greater consciousness and 
to try and ascend to some f- higher form of consciousness from, you know, they talk about the third and the fourth and the fifth. I don't want to, you know, define any of that. But, you know, there are more and more people starting to wake up to this low frequency stuff and trying to ascend past that. Yeah, yeah, I think you've hit on something very important. Sometimes when there's a genuine awakening going on in a human civilization or nation or group, uh, some people, in order to diffuse it, they'll begin to appropriate it into the mainstream culture, kind of like a a, a vaccine. You know, okay, just inoculate people with a tiny bit, tiny superficial bit of of something of some real truth, and then they'll be inoculated against so it. Think, okay, I already have that, and that way they maintain control. So, right, I mean, it's, it's like a false so, perception. It's like a false perception of this awakening. But there are, you know, I think that even at a, a root level, there are some people who are trying to get on board with it because they see oh, we need indeed, to get there. Indeed, they are. In, indeed, there are. Yeah, I I agree with you a hundred percent there. And I think even among the general, you could say. I, I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but among all the people who exist, many more are starting to sense there could be a, a different way of seeing ourselves, seeing others that would be quite different from what's going on today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's go back a little bit. And I know in 1984, you started to work with Richard Thompson. Yes. And you were starting to do publications called Origins, and that ultimately led to Forbidden Archaeology. You want to hit hit on that a little bit and talk to us a little bit about how it you know all of it went down from that point forward a little bit into the books you're writing now? Yeah. Uh, at that time we were both disciples of the same guru. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, who came from India in the 1960s to the United States and then to other countries as well. So I I was very attracted to his teachings and I found them quite interesting. But for, for one reason, he was very interested in, in making a critique of modern scientific concepts like the Darwinian theory of evolution from the standpoint of the Vedic philosophy of India. And it's it's a little bit different than some of the critiques that have come from other circles, intelligent design, creationism, although it has something in common with them, it's uh, still a little bit different. It's, a, it's, it's definitely different from what modern science is saying today. But uh, 
for example, there's the idea of there's a spiritual evolution. Say if you take the bodies of apes and monkeys, primitive apes and monkeys that existed millions of years ago, not exactly like those today. And then you have ape men, kind of like the Australopithecines and the Homo erectus and all the different ape man or hominin species, as they're called in science, and then the human form. So the scientific idea, the idea in modern science is that the forms, the material forms evolve. The Vedic picture is that the, uh, the forms, the material forms, the bodies, they all coexist. They're all available at any point in time. And an individual conscious self what may enter into the body of uh, a monkey, ape or monkey in one life, and then the next life into the body of a Australopithecus, and then Neanderthal, the next life, next life human. So there's an evolution of the conscious self through the different kinds of bodies. But they just have the idea, no, it's the bodies that are transforming one into the other, but they're always stuck with the question of consciousness. Where does that come from? In the Vedic system, it's there. It's in the conscious self, the Atma, as it's called in Sanskrit, or in Western theology, they would call it the soul. So, yeah. So, so Richard Thompson had been involved in thinking out some of these ideas of how to relate the Vedic philosophy and cosmology to what the findings of modern science are. Now, that I think they've gotten many things right, the modern scientists. It's not that they, everything they say is wrong, but when they get into areas that are really beyond their ability to control and duplicate in their laboratories, you get intense amounts of speculation that go on you know, about the origin of life. It's an unsolved problem in biology, even up today. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> the origin of the universe, there's... 40 different variations of the Big Bang Theory. Then there's string theory and all kinds of speculative ideas. So when they get into areas like that, it's a little bit, little harder for them. So Richard Thompson had thought a lot about these things. So uh, I was asked to work with him I was offered the opportunity to work with him on some writing projects. And I thought, okay, this, this sounds like something I can contribute to. So we, we did, as you say, publish a, a small publication, uh, 64 pages long, in which we briefly outlined the Vedic positions on the origin of life, the origin of species, the or including the human species, 
the origin of the universe, the origin of consciousness. And after we did that, we decided to take each topic and expand it into book form. And I took the human origins topic. And that was the result of, that's how Forbidden Archaeology, that book Forbidden Archaeology came about. And when people read that book, you know, they asked me a question. They asked, okay, you've got all this evidence that contradicts the Darwinian evolutionary picture of human origins. So where do you think human beings came from? If we didn't evolve from the apes and monkeys, where did we come from? So my answer to that question was the book Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory. And we've been talking about that earlier in our conversation here. So, uh, so just to briefly repeat that, you know, I, I said before we asked the question, where did human beings come from? Let's first decide what a human being is. And it, turns out, well, we're not just machines made of molecules. There's something else there, consciousness, for one thing, that has its own independent existence. Another question people ask me is, what has been the impact of your work in scientific circles? So to answer that question, I put together a book called uh, Forbidden Archaeology's Impact, in which I collected all the published responses from scientists who had reviewed the book and my responses to them and you know, different, uh, I included uh, different papers that I presented at scientific conferences, some of which were published in peer-reviewed publications, and so on. You know, I, one of the things that I heard you say that resonated with me was that the scientific community is, is affected by the Judeo-Christian religions. It really has an impact on what, you know, what our origin and what, what is time and, and things like that. I, I, can you explain to the people what that means? Yeah, it's uh, well. First of all, I like to say I don't think I have a, a monopoly on on truth. You know, I think truth can be found in a lot of places. It can be found in science as it's practiced today. It can be found in the Vedic tradition, the Christian tradition, the Jewish or tradition, Islamic tradition. I you know, don't claim to have a monopoly on truth, but it, it is a fact, however, that what we call science today arose not completely or totally, but in its present dominant form, it arose in Europe beginning about five or six centuries ago and it was 
as you say, a Judeo-Christian influence largely. Uh, there, there were also, you, you might call, sciences in other parts of the world. You know, there were other centers of civilization besides, uh, you know, there were the Chinese who had some developed ideas. In India, there was the Vedic. Uh, tradition which had very developed ideas other other parts of the world also and not just big civilizations but what what are today called tribal or tribal peoples and things like that they all had quite a bit of wisdom but given that western science or which has become spread all over the world today, it arose in a Judeo-Christian context. It more or less incorporated the Judeo-Christian time concept, which is linear. You know, things begin at a certain point and they progress. Whereas in other cultures, there was a more cyclical concept of time, like the Vedic time concept is basically cyclical. Uh, so if they have this linear concept of time, uh, it it's linear, it's also progressive. Things go from, they go in a certain order. And uh, basically if you look at the Judeo-Christian account of the cosmos begins with a creation event. There's just one. And human beings are created after the plants and animals. And they misuse their independence, the first humans, Adam and Eve, and therefore, their situation of life becomes much more difficult. They have to be saved, and there are different arrangements for that. You know, according to the, you know, either if you're on the Christian side of of it, it's kind of Jesus Christ appears, and saves everyone and there's a final last judgment and then the whole thing is over and it happens once and that's it right uh, so what often happens if you look take a long view of the history of civilizations is that in many cases uh there may be a certain uh, spiritual culture that people subtract things from, and then you wind up with the same culture, but without the idea of, say, God or the soul. And basically, that's what happened, or, or at least one could make a case that it happened. What may have happened is, and I think this is what did happen, is that in the Western world, they kind of kept 
the basic Judeo-Christian concept of linear progressive time. And they simply uh, secularized it in the form of, okay, uh, the first life arose on earth you know, in the ocean, there were simple creatures, then came the plants, then the animals, then finally the human beings, you know, two or 300,000 years ago. And the human beings have found themselves in a very difficult position. Uh, yes, they all developed, most of them, practically 99% of the cultures and civilizations that have been around have had some concept of God and some soul of some kind. But, but the, even though that may have been, you know, uh, good for their evolution in terms of helping people be more socially cohesive as a group, it still didn't solve their basic problems. So then came science, and we're going to deliver everybody. We're going to save everybody. We're going to upload their brain data into computers, and they'll exist forever in you know, some computer digital form somewhere. And then the whole thing will come to an end. There'll be the heat death of the universe, and that's it. So it's basically the same story, just with God and the soul taken out of it. But yeah, there are other cultures, as I said, that have you know, the Mayan culture and Central America, the Vedic culture, other others that have a more cyclical concept of time, that things... It doesn't happen just once. You know, it's it's not all finished. You know, and, and you know, there's it's 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 an entirely different concept. So I I once proposed this at a science conference, a meeting of the World Archaeological Congress, and I you know there was a section on time concepts and archaeology at that conference so I spoke in that part of it and I laid out these ideas and in a paper that I wrote and it was later published in a peer reviewed uh edition of a a, a book called Time and Archaeology which was uh, published by Rutledge, which is a major scientific publisher. So, uh, that so yeah, there there is that element. There's also another fact to consider, like where did this idea of separation of church and state come from? Basically in the form that it exists in modern science, especially in the West, comes from the fact that in England, at the time the Royal Society, England's first scientific uh, 
society still exists today. It's very prominent and influential in the world of science. When that institution was formed in, I think, the 1600s, uh, England had gone through a huge civil war based on conflict between religious groups. Uh, I'm not talking about little riots and things. There were major, major bloodbaths you know, that went on, massacres and th things like that. Uh, one reason why some of the smaller groups in England went to America and persecution colonies and you know so the, the scientists decided because up up to that time pretty much anything scientific was going on in the churches that controlled the universities all over Europe you know so at a certain point you know, when the period of conflict between Protestants and Catholics and everything began to heat up, there would be massive wars in Europe, wars, persecutions. Uh, some of the scientists, I think quite rightly and justifiably, decide, okay, we're going to step back from that and uh, we're going to just concentrate on not anything that is remotely connected with what they consider to be what religion really is. Uh, it, to me, you always have to distinguish between spirituality and religion, you know, because absolutely, because on one level, it can become okay. You're this and I'm that. We're different, and therefore let's fight. Uh, on another level, the higher, what I consider to be spiritual level, we understand we're all beings of pure consciousness. We're all from the same source. We're all part of the same family. Let's just see things like that, not divide ourselves up into viciously competing groups let's let's try to understand and appreciate each other as beings of pure consciousness so but i mean i so i think one reason that modern science formed was to get away from that conflict so they got this idea of separation of church and state now some modern philosophers like Paul Feyerabend was a German philosopher and histor historian of science who immigrated to the United States and taught at University of California at Berkeley. You know, he wrote an interesting uh, uh, book called Science in a Free Society, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, <clears throat> he said, in that book, he said, just like there's a, a uh, separation of church and state in a democratic free society, there should be a separation of science and state. Because what happened in the world of science is no, 
all scientists don't agree with each other. So what would happen is there would be a group of them would form a consensus. If they were in the majority, then what do they do with the other scientists who are fewer in number in smaller groups who oppose our idea and are trying to develop different ideas? Well, they did the same thing that the churches did, the big churches, try to stamp out the little ones or, or marginalize them or keep them out. of. So what, what happened is, is that governments would give the majority group of scientists a monopoly in their education systems, you know, their tax-supported education systems. And normally we wouldn't tolerate that, you know, in free societies, we we want to see diversity. We want to see minorities respected, allowed to speak, have their voice, their seat at the table. You know, so what they do is, you know, say, for example, in the United States, okay, most scientists, the, the majority consensus accepts the Darwinian theory of evolution. But there are groups of scientists, small, yes, who are exploring alternatives. The Christian creationists, the intelligent design theorists, and there are even uh, people who accept the theory of evolution, but not on the Darwinian principles. They think, you know, th there's some other third way, you know, that, that could be followed. They're also in a minority group. But the government, you know, it just listens to the main group. To, okay, majority group. Okay, you, you've got it. And we'll keep everybody else out of the textbooks, out of the classroom. And, you know, it, it's uh, something that wouldn't be tolerated. Like if you said, okay, this is a majority white population nation at the present time. So we're only going to mention what the white people did in, the, in our history books. We're not going to talk about the other people of other colors and races and religions. We're just going to talk about it. We wouldn't tolerate it. No. But but in, in, in the world of science, or you could say this is a majority Christian country, therefore in our textbooks we're not going to mention anything about the role of uh, Hebrews or Islamic people or Buddhist or Hindu people. It's a, it's a majority Christian country. We're just going to talk about Christianity and the government paid for education system in the textbooks. Now, I would say that that's not good for the government to do. And when I say government, you know, I mean either state or local or whatever, or national, because they all have something to say about education policy. But mostly they're singing from the same psalm book. You know, they're, they're singing the same song. 
Darwinian evolution, Darwinian evolution, everything else is nonsense, and that's it, because that's what the majority of scientists are. Like like I said, if they did that in any other area, like religion or race or anything, wouldn't be tolerated. Gender, gender, even right, it, it wouldn't be tolerated. So it's kind of uh, strange too because they they use these buzzwords like conspiracy theorist, pseudoscientist, yeah. pseudoarchaeologist, and they realize that these words have power. So like you said, these people that are this collective, that are the mainstream, shall we say, you know, that's what they call themselves. Once they label something like that, they, they ten, it tends to get disregarded immediately. Have you, well, have, have you had any pushback from that? Like, have you ever had this, this group of people tell you, no, that's not it? I mean, it's terrible to say, but, you know, I think that we need to be more open to figure everything out. I think that they're very narrow-minded. But have you re- received any kind, any kind of pushback like that? Uh, on occasion, yeah. Uh, but I, I just wanted to add one point to what you were saying. Yeah, there's because there, you, you were talking about the the use of language. Now people talk about hate speech. You know, if if you know some public figure were to label, you know, as, say, our former president did, you know, say some things, uh, people get hugely upset. Mm -hmm. But when they do the same thing themselves to somebody who happens to have a different intellectual understanding of where we came from, and and, and they're, they're doing it within the realm of science, just because they happen to be in the minority, then the hate speech is okay. They rationalize why they can say what they're saying, but no, you know, if it, yeah. if it was for a different subject, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't hold the same standard. Then yeah. you would be ostracized, which is what they're doing in the first place to that person that they're using these words against. They're taking their other ideas, which, you know, sometimes like myself, I like to think of really outlandish things and theorize about them. And sometimes I'll put it out, sometimes I won't. But that doesn't mean that everything I say is going to be, you know, just a theory. Most of it is done through investigation and research. And, you know, some, of course, everybody has their moments where they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, this is this and this is that. But, you know, but from one of those statements, you can be ostracized completely. It could ruin everything. Yeah, and... And you know, I kind of regard from the beginning of what I, I, from the beginning of my involvement in this sort of thing, I always had the idea I'm doing an experiment that is going to tell me something about how the world of science and the world in general works. You know, if you make the experiment of standing up against something, then you'll see what the reaction is. And that tells you more about the reality of it than anything you might read in a textbook or a book that somebody else has, has, has written. You know, it's a, it's an experiment, you know, whether it's, you know, to, 
not wear a mask or wear a mask uh, or this or that. Yeah, like it, go on a a march or a protest or uh, take a, a stand that is that turns out not to be popular. Then you see what the real situation is. So, yeah, I've had uh, experiences over the course of the years. One thing I like to say is that my personal experience is that scientists are not a complete monolith. They're not monolithic. They're, I, I basically have discovered three groups. Uh, one I call the fundamentalist materialist or Darwinist. They are very fixed on their ideas for reasons that I think are not really scientific in the sense that they have anything to do with scientific evidence or logic. It's based on their prior conviction that prior convictions about either atheism or materialism. You know, the idea that matter is the only thing that exists. There's no non-material substances. There's no higher intelligence. And if there is, it's not involved in what's going on on this planet as far as we can see or in the universe as far as we can understand it through our telescopes and whatever. So they don't like the kinds of things that I say, not just me, but many others within their scientific community and outside of it. I'm kind of in and out, but uh, uh, they're very much opposed. You know, so from that group, you get that's where you get these uh, name-calling things, pseudoscientists, you know, like when when the book Forbidden Archaeology came out, it was it was reviewed in many scientific publications. You know, they actually wrote full reviews of it, which meant they were taking it very seriously. Like, because normally they just ignore right all this stuff. You know, they but you know somehow or other they looked at this book and they decided we got to say something about this cuz if you say something in your publication you even mention it bring it up even to criticize it you know that's giving it status absolutely as something that has to be opposed that means it's some kind of threat a real one <laughs> that has to be dealt with in some way or another. So this one author, who's Jonathan Marks, who you know, in the journal was uh, American Journal of Physical Anthropology. You know, he, he wrote a really highly negative uh, review of forbidden archeology span in which he totally misrepresented what the book was about. He called it Hinduoid creation as a drivel. Although the only thing that's in the book is 
scientific evidence. You know, I, right. I, I kind of kept my Vedic ideas for another book, Human Devolution. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I kind of expressed them more directly there. But uh, they call it Hinduoid creationist drivel, pure dreck, you know, like that, oh, you know, all kinds of name calling and stuff like that. But then, so that's one group of scientists. And the other group is they're committed to the current theories, but for more or less scientific reasons. You know, as far as they can see, well, this is what makes sense to me. But they're willing to listen to alternatives. They're willing to give them a hearing and consider them. So scientists in that group have invited me or allowed me to present papers at major international scientific conferences. They've invited me to speak at their classes in universities around the world. I've been able, I've also been invited by scientists in that category to present my ideas at major scientific institutions like the Royal Institution in London, the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow, the Indian Institute of Sciences in India. So they're, although they may be supporters of the current ideas, they're not dogmatic about it. They're, they're willing to listen to alternatives. And I think that's important. Absolutely. It's an important first step because if ideas are going to change, the first thing one has to do is to, to, to listen to the alternative idea. And I'm of the policy, if somebody listens to me and they question me reasonably and they're not convinced, well, I have to respect their right to disagree with me. What I don't accept as if they try to use force, especially government force, to compel right. others to accept their ideas. Dismiss it out of hand because they didn't say it. Yeah. It, yeah. If, if, if something is – so I, I think that, that gets back to that fundamental problem of separation of science and state. But uh, – and then the third – group of scientists, which is very small in number, is the ones who actually agree with me, you know, that something's really wrong with the current, I say wrong, maybe that's not quite right. Something's off. Something's off. You know, there, there are questions to be asked here. It's, I mean, you know, they're, they're, in the ideal world of science, you know, conclusions are always provisional, subject to revision and things like that. So, so those are the basic reactions that I've gotten. And as I said, they have included the kind of name calling that you're speaking about. But I, I just I put all that in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, and I just let, I just look at, here's some data. You know, you want to see what it's like to uh, step up and present a, a, a different kind of idea in a 
scientific conference or publication, well, here's what it's like. And I, I just regard that as more data, both for me mm-hmm. and for others to kind of understand what the real nature of the world is that we live on, you know, at least that aspect of the world. Absolutely. You know, the scientific and scholarly part of it. So, and then I've also had some experience of um, scientists trying to stop lectures that I've been scheduled to give. Uh, that wow. that has happened at sometimes. Uh, you know, I was in one country. It was actually Russia. Yeah, I, yeah. My like you were saying in the beginning, my books are in many different languages. One of them is Russian. So, yeah, I went there not recently. This was more in the days, the more positive days <laughs> after right. communism had fallen, and there was a lot of hope for. Uh, Russian people and things like that, but uh, but in any case, yeah, you know, I, I I did several lecture tours all over Russia, different universities. And at one university, some professors had invited me to speak about forbidden archaeology, so a lecture was scheduled. But then some other professors in the university decided, no, we can't have this. We can't have him speaking uh, at our university because he's opposing, you know, the Darwinian theory of evolution. And he's doing it from some kind of spiritual perspective. So either one of them would have been enough. Yeah, but I was guilty on two counts. So they went... (laughs) They went to, you know, the head of the university. They call it a rector there. They went to the head of the university, and they made a complaint, and they got the lecture canceled. So then the scientists who invited me went to the local branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences, and the director there said, well, if they won't let him speak at the university, he can speak here. So the lecture was transferred to the uh, Russian Academy of Sciences auditorium. And the professors who invited me said more people came from the university, more professors and students than would have come because they were all wondering, what is this man going to say that's so dangerous? You know, that created a hype, created a hype about the lecture. Yeah, and it was kind of amazing. The next year, I went back to the same university, and I spoke in the biology department there, no problem. I guess they decided, better just let him talk. If we try to stop him, it's just going to be worse. So, and things like that happen in the United States as well. Once, like, Google has an interesting policy whereby their employees can invite different scholars and authors to speak at Google headquarters in Mountain View, California. And 
uh, I was invited. Uh, but same thing. The uh, Some other employees found out about it. Said, what are you bringing that pseudoscientist in here for? You know, went to the management. He's bringing it. We're a science-based company. And, you know, like, uh, why? How can we have this guy come in here? And they weren't successful, but they did make an attempt. You know, the, those... I kind of put them in the first category of scientists that I was talking about. Right. Kind of like the fundamentalist, materialist types. It's crazy, so, too, because I saw that on YouTube, and they, they cut probably hours-long presentation down to nine minutes. All it has uh, is nine minutes. Well, I, I've seen the full lecture on... They they put up what they do is you know you give it in an auditorium during lunchtime, and a lot of people came for that. But then they also kind of broadcast it on you know through their internal video service mm-hmm. uh, to the whole campus, and then they archive it on authors at Google on YouTube. And I think that one, I've looked at it myself. It was the full talk that I gave. Maybe it's changed, but who knows? Who knows? Now, one of the things I wanted to go over is you have been all over the world. You've been world-renowned. You've well-traveled. You know, you've been to a lot of different scientific institutes. Tell us your, the, your favorite place out of all the places you've been. Not so much the megalithic side. We're going to ask that question next. But you know, the scientific institutes, what was the, your favorite place and what were, what were some of the interesting things that you saw while traveling all these places? Well, uh, I would say, of course, I, I've been so many places and I like them all. I just like every aspect of what I do. I like sitting by myself and researching and, you know, I like writing. I (laughs) I like going out and talking about it. You know, I, I like the whole thing and I like everyone that I meet who's interested in this sort of thing. And, you know, so it's kind of difficult to pick a, a, an absolutely favorite place. But some of the significant places, I, I really liked my experiences in, in Russia. I liked, I, because, like I said, I, had, I was invited there several times, appeared on Russian national television. I spoke in at the Darwin Museum in Moscow, which used to be the, the uh, it was called the Museum of Atheism during, wow. uh, during Soviet times, communist times. Uh, and I was invited to speak at the Russian Academy of Sciences to their anthropologists and archaeologists that was that was good in england i had an invitation i I was invited to speak at the royal institution in london which is one of 
England's and the, actually the world's oldest scientific societies and you know like many many scientists famous scientists have spoken in that lecture series so that was that was really fascinating uh what i found i think because in the united states there's this big war between you know the christian creationist and intelligent design theorists and the mainstream scientific community has become part of the culture wars in the mm -hmm. United States. And because of that, everybody is very divided. You know, when we go to Europe or Russia or some other place, you know, they think, what is, what's going on in more America? More receptive to yeah, the message, they, right? They're a little bit more receptive to the message. Well, they just don't feel threatened by it. You know, I mean, what's what's the problem? This is intellectual life. You know, you right. speak your idea. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, in, in America, you know, it seems it's a matter of life and death, you know, for some of these, some of these groups, you know, on, on these questions. And I think there is a problem there, as I've explained it. And I think yes. the, the, the solution to it is a separation of science and state, just like there's separation between science and religion. And, you know, if we're going to talk about tolerating diversity and minorities and ending hate speech, it's got to be in all areas, not just in. There has to be a totality to it all. It's got to be enveloped in every aspect of life. And, you know, and I agree with that 110%. You know, I think that. Yeah. I mean, I really respect all these other other movements, but, you know, I kind of feel, okay, what about, what about right. us? <laughs> right. You know, and, and that's the thing is, is we, when you're looking at this spiritual aspect of life, it is encompassing everybody all different creeds colors races it's the human consciousness the human experience not yeah you know the 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 white man or hispanic man experience there's no separation there it's all the same and i think that that's what we mean by an awakening and grabbing for this 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 next level of of society that could be harmonious at its core of course it's going to take probably generations to get to that fundamental level because people are so indoctrinated with being this way now from the last 300 years, you know, and even further back than that, but, you know, a real consistency within the last 300 to 400 years of really, really this hate. And we have to get to the root of that hate and get it out, you know? Yeah. So you've also been to, a, a ton of megalithic sites across the world. What was the most interesting to you, or your most, the one you enjoyed the most? Uh, I kind of like going to Stonehenge. I mean, I mean, it's such a uh, an emblematic place and well known place. Yeah, you know, I always heard about it, and you kind of think, okay. 
I've seen that it's, but sometimes you know, to actually go to a place that you think you already know and understand can be very, you know, impressive, you know, to, to, to see, to see something like that. And I actually had the good fortune of, uh, Staying with a another alternative science researcher you know, who had invited me to speak at a conference he was organizing, but he lives the place where he lives is actually one of the old buildings that was used to house some of the scientists and other people who were working at Stonehenge. So it was the place where I was staying was really close to that. So that was interesting. But probably the most amazing place, the most amazing place that I saw, I've seen in my travels is the Ellora Cave Temples in uh, northern India. It's a place where you have these rock-cut temples uh, yeah. In, in other words, it's like this low kind of mountain made completely of rock, stone. You know, just this mountain of stone. And apparently, people went on the top and they started carving, and you know, like they built, you know, just out of the solid stone, they carved elaborate temples. And the most amazing one I saw was the Kailas Temple. It's actually huge. It's maybe you know a couple hundred feet high, and all kinds of towers and rooms and colonnades. And you just try to figure out how did people do that? How do you carve like this whole huge? temple with huge rooms and columns and ceilings and windows and just totally amazing do you get the when you go to those types of sites do you get this like this rush of energy or like this you look at it and you're just like whoa you know like it, it, it kind of like envelops the moment you just oof like you have to take a breath yeah i i get that more when I visit different sacred places, you know, I mean, every culture, tradition, you know, they have their sacred places, you know, for some it's Jerusalem, for some it's Rome, you know, for some it's something else, but to, and, and, and many of these sacred places, there are bodies of water that you can bathe in. And you, I, you know, like one of the sacred places in my tradition, the one that I'm associated with, is a place called Mayapur in West Bengal in India. It, about 500 years ago, uh, uh, an avatar named Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appeared there. It was a, a, a manifestation of the ultimate form of 
supreme conscious being in other words like god you would say that's a western term mm -hmm. but they they use other terminology there but uh so there are temples there there are sacred places there where people gather and they begin to sing and dance and chant it's like a festival mood and when I have gone there and participated in some of these events, it's like I feel more or less like what you said. To me, I, sometimes I compare it to being in a spiritual jacuzzi you know, or something you know, where yes. all these energies are just circulating and you realize I mean, sometimes people use the word portals, you know, portals to other dimensions and things like that. So, yeah, I have had feelings like you're just describing when I visit these sacred places and kind of open myself to their influence. Like you could be sitting in your hotel room or whatever and saying, do I really want to go out and walk a couple of miles in a pilgrimage and it'll be hot, it'll be, you know, uncomfortable. And But then, all right, you decide, okay, you came all this way, you know, you should right. go out there and do it, you know, like otherwise, why did you even come? You could have stayed in your room, you know, right. back in L.A., you know, so, all right, so let me do it. Let me participate. Let me go on the pilgrimage. Let me go to the sacred site. Let me let loose a little bit. And when I do that, it's kind of like you say, one of those Absolutely. peak peak experiences. They're important, you know, and I think that you know, you've seen so many places, too, so I'm sure you've had quite a few. One question I ask people who are researchers, and you know, you're an archaeologist on top of that, what was the most prolific finding or piece of evidence that you think is the most important aspect of your work? Uh to me, it's not any single artifact. Of course, I'm I'm not a professional archaeologist. I'm more of a historian of archaeology and looking at that discipline and applying certain principles that historians of science and philosophers of science have used in, in which to analyze different scientific disciplines and what they're doing, what they consider to be knowledge and not knowledge. and So I, I, I do things like that. But to me, the most important thing in my work, the most significant thing I found, is there are not just a few anomalies. You know, it's not like somebody could say, okay, all right, you may have found uh, in the history of archaeology, you know, from 
the time of Darwin to the present, a few anomalies, but the vast majority of evidence supports our theory. You know, like, all right, if that were the case, that would be one thing. But what I found in my research is that there's not just one or two or three or a handful of these things. There are hundreds of them, thousands of them, enough to fill up a 900-page book, which caused some people to call forbidden archaeology, forbidding archaeology. You know, they didn't want to pick up the book. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're also a writer, too. And I'm asking these questions because I feel like that they're important because it's your explanation of either your work or what you've done. Since yeah. you've written a oh, lot of great questions. Oh, thank you. Since you've written a, 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 quite a few books, what do you think is either the most, uh, mo I don't want to say most important or prolific, but what paragraph or sentence stands out to you in all of that body of work? Uh, probably the concept of knowledge filtration. There is a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. And I would say the most significant parts of my writings are the parts in which I present or document how that knowledge filtration process operates. That's probably why I, I I, one of my feelings as a writer is I wish people would give more attention to the book Forbidden Archaeology's Impact, uh, in which I kind of lay out my personal experiences and, and encountering that knowledge filtering process in the world of archaeology. It's a... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, basically, it means you know, evidence that conforms to the dominant consensus will pass through this intellectual and social filter, which means you read about this evidence in the textbooks, hear scientists talking about it at their major conferences. You'll see it on the Discovery Channel or whatever, and and if you have evidence that radically contradicts a dominant consensus or paradigm, it gets filtered out. So I, I've always kind of felt that that's the most important concept or phrase or sentence that I used in all of, used in my books, if you look at all of them. There is a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. That's incredible. I, I'm hearing that you're working on Forbidden Archaeology 2. Yeah. That's a work in progress. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, since the original book was published, uh, other cases, newer cases have come to my attention you know, in those many years. So I wanted to put all those together. And I've done that. The book, the manuscript of it is uh, 
actually finished. It's now in the hands of uh, someone who's going to proofread it and make editorial suggestions you know, about it. And then uh, when, when I get the manuscript back from the editor proofreader, then I'll, it'll be finalized. And at that time, I'll select illustrations for the book, and then it, it will go into production. So we're not too far off from it then. It could be soon. Depends upon when the proofreading is done. Awesome. It could be soon, yes. Well, I can't wait for it. I can't wait. I am definitely, definitely going to read that one as well. One question I like to ask you, too, since you are very versed in being a historian and an author, if you had any advice to give to somebody starting off with researching and trying to be a historian to follow in the footsteps of you know trailblazers like you, what would be some advice that you would give to them? Well, I think one has to know who one's audience is. Yeah, when I was writing Forbidden Archaeology, it took me eight years to write it. And it was the before that I had been writing other types of things, you know, connected with the group that I belong to, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. You know, I I was part of a group of writers that produced a series of small books on reincarnation. It was called Coming Back, The Science of Reincarnation. We did another book about the vegetarian spiritual diet called The Higher Taste. We did a book about mantra meditation called Chant and Be Happy. And then I got into the science topics. So Forbidden Archaeology was my first look at that topic, science, especially human origins. So I, I was thinking, okay, I'm spending eight years writing this book. As I, during the eight years that I was writing the book, I was thinking, who is this for? What is going to happen with this? I, I kind of felt I had to visualize what the future would be, what would happen when the book was finished. I decided I'm going to aim this book at a lot of different audiences because I think they all have some role to play as we, as you mentioned in the, the intro, as we renegotiate this concept of who we are and where we came from. So I decided, okay, the mainstream scientists are going to be part of that discussion, that negotiation. And the alternative types of researchers, they're going to be involved in it. People interested in spirituality, they're going to be involved in the discussion. Uh, people involved in paranormal research of all kinds, UFOs, every, they're going to be uh, part of that audience. And 
people specifically interested in Vedic and Indian philosophy and science, they're going to be interested. So I was thinking of all those people when I was writing that book. I kind of made a plan. And the plan that I had that I visualized was that the first group I would send the book Forbidden Archaeology to would be the mainstream scientists. <laughs> and <clears throat> therefore, you know, I had planned, what am I going to do? I'm going to send it to all the major in, uh, scientific journals that deal with archaeology and uh, history of science and philosophy of science. And I'm going to send it out to them. And I know that many of the responses are going to be negative. You know, they're going to... But I was surprised. There were many positive things, you know, that that came out in the reviews. But whatever it was, my thought was, okay, I'm going to take those reviews and then I'm going to bring out a shorter edition of the book for the general public, you know, called The Hidden History of the Human Race. And then on the cover of that book, I'm going to put the positive and negative reactions of these scientists, some of whom were very prominent. And that I'm going to use that to generate publicity because I kind of understood that uh, eventually, and, and, and then that book will be, sent to media people, radio, television, newspapers, magazines. And then uh, then the book will be translated into many different languages. And then I've got to be prepared to speak about it at conferences, at classrooms, to radio and television uh, interviewers, so <clears throat> I kind of had it, and then the final thing would be get it made into a Hollywood movie based on the the principles of it, you know, like the uh, the basic ideas and concepts. So what actually happened is basically. The book was printed. I sent it to the scientific journals. They did review it. I used those reviews to get... Now I had... Because scientists read those journals, archaeologists read them, anthropologists read them, I'm known in their, their circles. So then, you know... You know, I had the idea that, yeah, when I'm known among them from these reviews, that gives me the opportunity to speak to them at their conferences. So I had the idea I would join their conferences. Now, uh, so when the book was actually published, then everything more or less happened the way that I envisioned it. The book came out, 
it was reviewed by scientists. I started speaking at scientific conferences and I started getting invita invitations to speak from the alternative science groups. I was kind of initially surprised that I got started getting invitations from UFO groups, you know, because on one level, it seems, okay, I'm talking about archaeology, stones and bones showing humans lived millions of years ago on Earth. What's that got to do with UFOs? But the common link was knowledge filtration. Mm. You know, that, that they felt, okay, we're being, you know, information is being withheld. We're being mischaracterized. You know, in other words, in the UFO alien abduction field, there's also this sense that science, it, although there's really good evidence, they're excluding it. They're filtering it out. They're filtering out us. You know, so I think that was the common link that got me so many invitations to speak at UFO-oriented conferences. And then... And then the book did start to attract interest from foreign publishers. So the whole thing basically played out the way that I envisioned it. So my advice to a, an, an author, of course, the, the media landscape and everything has been changing over the years. I'm kind of aware of, aware of that myself. But I, I don't consider myself fully adapted to the world. I mean, I have a, a Twitter handle, I have a Facebook page, I, you know, all those things. But you sure I, do. I there it is. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I'm a, a fully expert. You know, so I would say to an author today who wants to have impact. The only thing that didn't happen is the Hollywood film, at least not one based on the forbidden archaeology concept that, not credits, that credits me. Maybe you could say a lot of the things that have come out, some of the things that come out are maybe ripped off but directly related to the book for sure for directly, sure somehow you know like without any credit but but yeah thus far that hasn't happened but uh, and then so i would advise any author thinking of getting into this is think who your audience is who are you trying to reach specifically because Everybody isn't interested in everything or, or, or very few topics are appealing to every kind of audience. Usually you're appealing or trying to reach certain audiences or, or at least you'll see that more some audiences are going to be more interested in what you have to say than others. And then you have to decide through which 
media are you going to reach those audiences? And then how are you going to respond to them on an ongoing basis? What's your next step? Right. So I, I would say for any author or aspiring author is think like that. Who am I trying to reach and through what medium am I going to reach, reach them? And how am I going to relate to them? Will it be through a podcast, an ongoing series of 10-minute videos, e-books, printed books? There's you know, a lot all, of landscape the, out there. There's yeah, a lot of landscape. It, it's a it's an entirely different landscape than the one I started in. <laughs> it it definitely is. I mean, it I've seen the change myself, and it's it's crazy. Everything is social media based, or you know, uh, instant gratification type stuff. Like back in the day, we used to wait for things. Now everything's at your fingertips, and you could just grab it like that, you know? Yeah, and you have to be ready to respond to it 24-7 instantaneously yep. as well. Absolutely. I guess in politics, they say like that too. You know, the the news it's, cycle, it used yes. to be a day. Now it's every hour, every minute. You know, That's things a, can change. Absolutely. At, speaking of news cycles... You know, I know you've done quite a few appearances on Ancient Aliens. What do you think it, about this disclosure that they're talking about with uh, the Navy giving up all these files and, you know, the UFO? You, you've, I wouldn't say been involved, but you've been connected to the UFO community for a long time. So what do you think this disclosure is going to be from the Air Force and, you know, the, the armed forces, I guess, with all this information? Uh Good question. I mean, you mentioned ancient aliens. I did appear in their pilot version many years ago. I did appear in uh, maybe the first few seasons a few times, but then they stopped inviting me for some reason. I think even in even in the alternative world. I'm uh, a little bit of a maverick and a renegade. Yeah, you. That's could okay. Say. We love but, those uh, people. We love those I, people, Michael. I, for sure. I I know. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, as far as the disclosure, yeah, I've, I've, I'm kind of looking forward to that. I I kind of noticed that uh, it was really kind of a, a bit buried. You know that that provision was placed in some Defense Department authorization bill, funding bill, somewhere that there was a a little sentence about, and we're requiring this little department to give a report on UAPs and within six months, and you know it, it kind of. I think initially was was little noticed at a pretty early stage i I did uh become aware of it and I put it on 
my Facebook page. so I'm kind of interested. I've been reading some things that have come out in some mainstream publications where they're kind of trying to anticipate uh, what they're going to do. Uh, I guess a lot of attention has already been paid to the uh, video clips that have been released by the Navy. And, you know, I mean, I mean, some of the analysts from the the mainstream, they're saying, oh, these things can be easily explained as it was like a bird, you know, flying here, you know, this or that. You've got pilots, trained pilots who fly aircraft that can go two or three times the speed of sound that are that are, their lives depend upon their instruments and their eyes being able to detect things and react, understand what they are. You know, if you want to say all these Navy pilots of these super fast aircraft whose lives actually depend upon their being able to recognize and understand what's going on around them, that, they, that they're that they making such mistakes is, I, I think it's much more reasonable to think that the person who's writing the article doesn't know what he's talking about. That's, so we'll just crazy. have to see. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I heard somebody the other night on uh, primetime television say that they had an, an aircraft that they couldn't identify that was flying into, I think it was over Virginia and D.C. for the last two years every day, and nobody could identify what it was. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like closed-off airspace, too. So I'm sure that they sent people out to engage it, and nobody still doesn't know what it is. You know, there's so much that goes with that. It's, it's absolutely wild. It's absolutely wild. And, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to see what comes out, too. I definitely am. Well, it, it is kind of interesting because recently, you know, there's – it seems kind of deliberate. You know, there's some deliberate decision has been made to roll out something. And – whether it's going to be something that really reveals some truth that has up to now been, uh, for what, for whatever reason, not made public, then that would be interesting. But if it turns out to be something that just is more meant, more or less meant to inoculate the general public against any further things. Yes, we have this understudy. There are things that we've observed that we really can't explain. Uh, but we'll, we eventually we will. So just be patient. We've explained some of them. But, you know, we'll just have to see. Absolutely. And that's kind of like the whole conversation came full circle. This is where we started with the uh, inoculation thing. So I think that that's a great way to sum up what we've discussed today. And I want to thank you 
so much for coming on. You are one of the people that I look up to in this field and doing research and writing. And it's been a complete honor and a privilege to talk to you today. Uh, it's to me, it means the world. It really does. And, and I appreciate you and everything that you do, Michael. Well, thank you. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I'm going to let you, you know, say some final words before we close shop and then we'll talk off camera for a moment. Yeah. If uh, people are interested in following up on, on my work, they could visit my website, mcremo.com. And there, uh, there's a, a schedule and interview link that, that tells about my upcoming interviews. Not so many uh, lectures, public lectures scheduled uh, at the present moment because of the ongoing pandemic, but maybe that'll be finished sometime soon and we'll get back to getting out on the road and meeting people in person at different venues and conferences. So that that would be any information about that would also be on that page. And then there's information about how to purchase my books. Uh, we have a, a special offer on the website that if anyone purchases my most recently published book, My Science, My Religion, from, from the website, they'll also have the opportunity to receive a complimentary free copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the ancient Indian spiritual texts that have inspired my work. Excellent. Excellent. You know, well, thank, I, I, uh, thank you again, Michael. It's been phenomenal. Well, thank you. You know, I, you know, I, I think we all have different roles to play in this, in this, endeavor you know people who are doing research and writing people who are communicating through different media these kinds of ideas to people uh you know the people who t take the time to listen to something like this and who might be inspired to do something themselves i think it's all part of a uh, a group effort, a community effort, you know, so many people are able to play all the different roles, be researchers and writers and host talk shows and podcasts. And I'm kind of focused on, you know, the research and writing and speaking aspect of it, but I, certainly recognize your contribution and that Thank of so many others you know, who organize conferences and events and things like that. It's uh, just uh, amazing to be part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We actually have two conferences coming up in the books right now. We're working on a third. So June 20th, we have a conference called Seed, which is going to be all about holistic medicines, earth-based medicines to help do a natural, uh, natural frequency revibration. 
things like that. We also have uh, Full Spectrum Universe's one-year anniversary on July 11th, which is going to have a whole host. It's going to be a whole day event as well. And again, I want to thank everybody out there for listening. And I want to thank Michael for stopping by and giving us his time today. It's been really spectacular. So on that note, uh, yeah, it's time for you guys to go back to your own universe. This has been Full Spectrum Universe. And my guest has been Michael Cremo. And uh, go out and buy, go to his website, check in on him, and buy his books, man. It's really worth it. It definitely is worth it. Thank you. <laughs>